Well, we began our time the very first week back uh, earlier this month just taking a broad brush look at God's design for the family, the reality that God did design what the family should look like as a part of his larger plan. And family is a vital piece of that plan. It's not the end goal of that plan. Um, God is about more than families, and we need to understand how family fits into that larger goal of God redeeming a people for himself, conforming them to the image of his son for his glory, and, and family is one aspect of that. And, and we looked at some different fundamental realities and, and truths that we want to keep perspective on as our goals as, as, a, as parents to be centered on the Lord and, and how to think about that. And then we transitioned to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, one of those foundational verses about parenting that says we are to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so as we seek to train up our children to direct their hearts to Christ, God has given us two primary tools, as it were, in our toolbox, two related tools, not, not entirely separate from one another, but that of discipline, of of corrective discipline and formative discipline, shaping our kids, responding to the, the reality that they are sinful and need to be corrected and directed. And then the second reality, that of instruction. And again, those are not two separate silos that we think about. It's not like, oh, I'm disciplining my kids right now. I'm not instructing them. Um, no, you, you, those two things relate. But two aspects that we want to think about as it regards uh, relates to parenting. And Discipline, as we discussed, it's not a formula. It's not something where you can just say, okay, you know, insert child A, and, you know, this is how you always respond, and bam, they come out perfect. Um, it's a, it's a, 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 a reality that takes great wisdom on our part, but God has given us instruction for how that should look. And so we were reminded that it should be shaped by the nature of our kids, the fact that they're sinners, and, and the fact that um, they will exist for eternity. And so there is a... a a focus that we need to have on discipline. It should be shaped by God's discipline of his children. He's faithful to discipline us, to train us, and our discipline should reflect the, the character of God and the way that he approaches those things. It should be shaped by the warnings and exhortations of Scripture, the specific things God has told us about discipline, and, and a, it should be shaped by the age and condition of our children, transitioning them to self-discipline before the Lord. And it should be shaped by the gospel. It's intended to direct their hearts to Christ. Well, today we want to transition from discipline to instruction. Um, and we want to think about what it looks like for us to be faithfully instructing our children. Now, there's a reason we talk discipline first and then instruction. One of those is the order of Ephesians 6.4. The other reality is that you have more opportunity to instruct your children as they get older. We talked about this a little bit last time with the, the lessening authority we have and the greater influence. Instruction in many ways is that influence on the children that, we, that God has given us. And one of the foundations to being able to instruct your children is the fact that they are willing to come underneath your authority. You know, if you think about something as simple as having a five-minute conversation with your children after dinner, well, if your child refuses to sit there and they just want to get up and do whatever they want, you don't have the opportunity to have that five-minute conversation with them instructing them. 
So the establishment of our authority as parents, of our kids being responsive to our authority and direction, really sets the table for us being able to faithfully instruct and train them long term. If your children do not respect your authority, they're unlikely to listen to your instruction, and even the opportunities for that will be more limited than you would hope. So we want to think today about instructing our children. And if we are going to instruct our children as God intends, the first thing we have to do is we have to embrace our responsibility for instructing our children. We've talked a little bit about this in in our our first week, um, but God has clearly given parents responsibility for instructing their children. Ephesians 6.4 is a verse we've already talked about, but this permeates the biblical commands and the biblical examples of parents. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me this morning. We've looked at this verse briefly and we'll consider it in more detail actually next week as we will take two weeks on instruction in a similar way that we did with discipline. But Deuteronomy 6 is kind of the the central passage in the Old Testament regarding God's character and and our response or the nature of God as as one God and our response to Him of loving the Lord with all our heart. And that's not just to be something that is true of us, it's to be something we are seeking to instill in our children. And so verse 6 says, these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. We should dwell on them and meditate on them. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. There's an intentional effort to instruct our children in the Word of God. Teaching them diligently, and and that's more formal instruction. We'll unpack that again a little more um, later in next week. But And then it says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. This is more informal interaction. When you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. He says it's parents' responsibility to teach these things diligently to your sons, to your children. Psalm 78 expresses a similar reality. It says in verse 5, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which He commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Or Proverbs 1, 8 and 9 says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck their instruction to children to listen to the instruction and teaching of parents. And so we have a responsibility as parents to instruct our children. Now we live in a a day and age where there is great assistance for that in relationship to biblical truth being communicated to our kids. And there's great assistance for that in really lots of different areas of life. I mean, the reality is, if if you want your kids to learn how to do something, you can find someone else to teach them today. You know, if you want your kids to learn how to play piano, maybe you know, you can teach them, but eh, no big deal. You can always pay somebody else to teach your kids to do that. You know, in so many different categories of life, the default response of many parents is, I'm going to have someone else teach my kids that. It's important enough that I want them to learn it, but I'm going to allow someone else that responsibility. And again, it's not wrong for others to participate in that, but we have to embrace the fact that God has given us that chief responsibility. 
You know, really, this is one of the things that, that is, is a characteristic of our church's children's and youth ministry is that we don't view those things as a replacement for parents. They are there to assist parents to come alongside and reinforce, but the idea is they are assisting parents coming alongside, not taking that role. Obviously, sometimes parents are not faithful. Some kids may not have believing parents. Uh, but God's intent is you and I as parents have this responsibility and are seeking to fulfill that, benefiting from the support and help and encouragement of others and the reinforcement of that in the context of the church. So we have to embrace our responsibility for instructing our children a second reality is we have to remember our goal in instructing your children. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a verse we'll, we'll focus on a lot today, a, a section of 2 Timothy. As we unpack this reality of instruction, and Paul is writing to Timothy, a, a, a young man who was pastoring and he was encouraging him on a lot of levels. Timothy was someone that Paul had interacted with a lot and had been a, a, a spiritual father to him. Timothy's mother and grandmother had also had a formative influence on Timothy and shaping him. And in chapter 3, he's describing the realities of what will come in the world, that there will be many who will not live in a way that is consistent with God's uh, intent and with loving him. Verse 13 says, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But by contrast, he says to Timothy in verse 14, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then those familiar verses that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. Notice what he, he says to Timothy back in verse 14. He says, you continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. You see, sometimes when we think of instruction... We think of the primary goal, as, as we probably thought of it when we were young and in school, of like learning something for long enough to regurgitate it back and be done with it. <laughs> you know, that's how we sometimes think of instruction, is it's just can you, can you pass a test on this? Can you get the right answer on this? And Paul reminds us that there's a larger goal. Now it does start with them learning. So we do have the goal of our kids learning the Scripture gospel. Paul alludes to that. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned. Your kids and mine do need to learn specific truth of God and His Word. They do need to know the right answer. That's a key part of, of instructing them is filling their hearts and their heads with biblical truth. But that's not the exclusive goal the goal is not to say that, oh, by fifth grade, man, if they can pass a hundred question multiple choice test on the Old and New Testament, we are there. That's not, that's not where we want to stop because he says, Timothy, you, however, uh, continue in the things you've learned and become, what, convinced of. 
had a, a conviction regarding. How many of you passed a test in high school about something you couldn't have cared less about? Yeah, all of us. Uh, but the reality is we want them to learn things that are true to be convinced of the reality of those things such that it shapes their thinking and their living and their response. There's a difference between knowing the right answer and living in light of that truth because you are convinced of its reality. You know, if your kid can tell you what God made on every day in Genesis 1, that's great. But if they are not living, recognizing God is the creator, and therefore he is worthy of worship, he has the right to tell me how to live, my life should be about him and not myself, they have, we, we have not accomplished what we hope for in instruction. So our goal is that they learn the Scripture and the Gospel, that they would be convinced of what they have learned, and then that they would continue in what they have learned and become convinced of. That's really what Paul is urging Timothy here. He says, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Timothy had been faithful for a long time. He, he, had, he was committed to the Lord, he was living for the Lord, and Paul is urging him, continue in those things. Because that's that long-term perspective we have as parents. It's not just about, can you pass a multiple choice test in fifth grade? Are you convinced and still professing faith in a junior year of high school? It's, are you going to continue living this way when the world gets increasingly hostile, when maybe we as parents are dead and gone if the Lord hasn't returned yet, and the world is continuing to go downhill, will you stand firm on the truth of God and the Scriptures? That's our goal, that they would continue in what they have learned. Now, this is certainly a a demonstration of genuine faith to continue in the faith. Colossians 1 21 through 23 puts it this way, it says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. He says, you were alienated, you were hostile, God has brought you near, you are now reconciled to Him, you are in Christ. But then he gives this, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. He had every expectation they would, but the point is, if you're genuinely in Christ, you will continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. You will not move away from the hope of the gospel. Uh, We were, had a a staff retreat this uh, past week uh, with our pastoral staff, our staff leadership, and we were talking just about uh, our kids and family updates, and, and uh, some of us with older children were sharing about uh, the, the realities in their life, and, and uh, one of the pastors made a comment, you know, ultimately their story's not fully written yet. Like, we're encouraged about what we see, but there's still a lot of life left, and, and our hope is that they will continue, and our expectation is they will continue in the Lord, but that's what we are longing for. So our goal is they would continue in the faith, that they would not 
move away from the hope of the gospel after they leave our home or, or after years of, of living in the world. And, and it's that they would continue in, in obedience, continuing to live out what they have learned. This is really the goal of, of our ministry to anyone and, and to our children. That's why the Great Commission, Matthew 28, says that we're to make disciples, teaching them to what? To observe all that I have commanded you, that they would continue to, to grow in and obey Him. So you guys, that's our goal. Don't think of it as cramming for a final exam. You want your kids to know all the right answers. You want them to know things, but you want to see them convinced of those things and continue in those things for a lifetime of faithfulness to the Lord. Now there is a limit to what you can do in their heart, right? You can help them learn things. You cannot work in such a way as a parent to guarantee they will be convinced of those things. But you do have the opportunity to play a role in that. We're going to flesh that out more even as this verse does. You know, we want our kids to continue. Or you might think of it this way. You know, you're, you're familiar with the, the parable of the... Uh, the hidden treasure, Matthew 13, 44, Jesus was describing the kingdom of heaven this way. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. This is a picture of, of what it looks like to, to put all your eggs in the basket of Christ. <laughs> As one who, who knows who he is and, and who understands the gospel, you are all in on the kingdom. That's what we want for our kids. You know, think of it this way, that analogy, the, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure in a field. You know, you don't just want your kids to know what treasure is. You, you don't just want them to know that treasure is valuable. You don't just want them to know even that, hey, there's treasure buried over in that field. You want them to so appreciate the value of that treasure that they do what? Now they sell everything. And they go and they buy that field with joy. That that is what they are all about. The goal is, is more than just head knowledge. John Piper put it this way. He said, what we want from the next generation is not just heads full of right facts about the works of God. We want heads full of right facts and hearts that burn with the fire of love for the God of those facts. Hearts that will sell everything to follow Jesus into the hardest places of the world. That, that's, that's our hope. That's what we are eager for. Uh, Bruce Ware, who has written a, a helpful book on helping kids to understand the, the truth of who God is, he, he describes it this way. It's like you're putting firewood in that fire place. As a parent, you're loading them up with fuel for that fire by instructing them. You can't light the fire, but you can pack it full of wood so that if and when that fire gets started, it is a roaring blaze of devotion to the Lord. That's, that's what we're about. And we're not content because there's a lot of firewood in the fire. We want to see hearts that burn with love for God. That's why Proverbs says the goal of, of and the foundation of instruction is the fear of the Lord. It's not, again, just head knowledge. It's a response to God. Now, I would suggest that because this is our goal, because it's not just 
facts, and it's, it's, but it's a response to those facts of reverence and awe and worship and faith and obedience. This is one reason why we have to think about parenting as an offensive thing, not a defensive thing. So, so many parents think of, you know, how do we protect our kids from stuff? And that's important. But parenting should be offensive in the sense that we are seeking to draw our kids towards this great and glorious God by how we live and how we talk. You know, we just had a basketball tournament for uh, four of our girls this weekend. They had uh, uh, game Friday and then games yesterday and um, we're in the midst of basketball season, and in God's providence, all five of my children have loved and enjoyed basketball. Some of that is just who knows why. Uh, some of it is we have five girls who are close in age, so they get to do stuff together, and they've all ended up enjoying that, and they all have good friends who enjoy it, and so that's a part of that. But part of the reality is that Christy and I have enjoyed basketball, and so we have, have modeled for them a joy in playing basketball. I, I have uh, gotten to play in the men's league uh, the last uh, 10 years at various points in various ways. Um, I, I, was, um, I played this last season and my kids told me, or maybe it was my wife, I don't remember, maybe both, that this was the first season where I looked like an old man playing in the men's league. <laughs> but it's true. Um, <laughs> but we still won. The old man team beat the young guys. Basketball IQ matters, so, uh, uh, so we still had fun. But my kids have gone to men's league. In fact, they, love, they, they, they go to men's league games to watch when I'm not even playing. Like, they just want to go watch the men in our church play basketball. It's, it's fun, and, and they enjoy that. But they've seen us enjoy basketball. They've, they've gotten to experience that. They've been around other people who enjoy basketball. And so the result is they also now enjoy basketball. Again, that, that's not a guarantee. Uh, it's not something that we, we know for sure. If, if we just model for them a love for something, they will embrace that. But it, it oftentimes has a profound impact on our kids. If I had just told Anna, our oldest, that basketball was the greatest sport ever invented and that it should be her favorite sport, and uh, maybe I even signed her up for a league and took her to practice, but she never saw me touch a basketball or play it, or she never saw me watch it, or she never heard me talk about it, you know, she'd probably grow up thinking, Dad's kind of weird and doesn't consistently model what he's telling me. So we need to embrace our responsibility for instructing our children. We need to remember our goal. More than head knowledge, we want it to impact their heart. And that's one reason why, third, we must recognize that our example is instructing our children. It's fascinating to me, in 2 Timothy 3, after Paul said, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, if you hadn't looked ahead in that verse, and, and I ask you, like, what's the most compelling reason why Timothy should continue living faithfully before the Lord in accordance with his word? My guess is most of us would think something like, well, because it's the Bible and it's true. And he gets there. Or, or because it's, it's about God. And God is worthy of that. But notice what he says. He says, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. It's fascinating. 
Timothy should continue in these things because they are true. He should continue in these things because God is God and he is worthy of it. But he says the first reason you should continue in these things, Timothy, what should echo in your mind as you are debating whether to continue in the midst of a difficult world is knowing from whom you have learned them. He was talking about himself, Paul. He was talking about uh, Lois and Eunice, his, uh, his family members who had instructed him, others. Was he just saying, you know, they were the smartest people on the planet? I don't think so. Was he saying, you know, you, they, they were the most compelling teachers? I don't think so. He's saying their life reflected this commitment. You got to see an example in addition to the instruction that you received. Archbishop Tillotson, quoted by J.C. Ryle, put it this way, he said, to give children good instruction and a bad example is but beckoning them with the head to show them the way to heaven while we take them by the hand and lead them in the way to hell. That's a, that's a powerful reality. You know, in, in education, I was a, a middle school education major in, in college, and you know, we talked some about the hidden curriculum. You know, it's one thing to have a defined curriculum that you are actively trying to teach. The hidden curriculum is kind of what you are inadvertently communicating to your class. So if you're doing a, a, a lesson on... Um, you know, uh, in, a, in a biblical perspective on gender, and you're talking about the equal value of, of male and female in God's eyes, and yet you only call on boys the entire class and you ignore the girls, well, you're communicating something different than what you are intending to instruct in that way. That's the reality as parents. There's a hidden curriculum. There's something we're really teaching our kids by our life that may or may not line up with what we are saying with our mouth. We have to recognize first that our life speaks volumes to your children. Commenting on this text in 2 Timothy, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, to successfully learn spiritual convictions from others and to hold them as your own, it is necessary not only to hear them clearly taught, but to see them consistently lived. You see, kids can learn the right answers from someone who is not consistently living out these realities. But the normal means that God uses to help kids go from head knowledge to shared conviction and continuing is when that is reinforced by a life living out those convictions. Again, not a guarantee, but the normal means that God uses. That's why in 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul wrote to Timothy to pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. It's not just what you say, it's how you live. That's why Deuteronomy 6 talks about the reality of our own life in anticipation of us teaching that we must be careful to do these things. We must love the Lord with our heart and soul and all our might and these words shall be on our hearts before we teach. John Engel James put it this way, he said, Parents, as you would wish your instructions and admonitions to your family to be successful, enforce them by the power of holy example. It is not enough for you to be generally pious, you must be wholly pious, not only real disciples but eminent ones, not only sincere Christians but consistent ones. 
your standard of true religion should be very high. And then he says this, sobering words, to some parents I would give this advice, say less about religion to your children or else manifest more of its influence. Leave off family prayer or else leave off family sins. Now, obviously you understand it's not really an option to say, well, we just won't talk about the Bible and God and the gospel. No, we have to do that. But we have to do that and have that matched by a testimony of faithfulness to those things. Now, does that mean you need to be perfect as parents? Does that mean if you're going to instruct your kids, you better never mess up yourself? No, it doesn't. Because part of what you're instructing your kids in is how to rightly respond when you sin. And how God responds when we sin and the opportunity that we have for grace and forgiveness. So when you sin, you don't need to think, oh, I've blown it, I can't instruct my kids anymore. You need to think, I need to model for them how I would teach them and how the Bible teaches us to respond to sin, which is in humble confession, seeking forgiveness. That's what we need to model. And we should be striving to live faithfully, but that doesn't mean we, we will be or, or can be perfect in those ways, but we should be growing and we should be modeling for our kids increasingly growth in and a pattern of spiritual maturity in our life. I remember this as, as a child. My, my parents were both um, in Christ when I was born. They had not gone to a real solid church um, from the time that they were married. They'd always just kind of gone to the... the um, kind of uh, shallow church that, that was teaching the Bible-ish, but not in great detail or providing a lot of avenues for discipleship. And, and through some circumstances, we moved to a different church when I was in about sixth grade, and it was a church that faithfully proclaimed the word. My, my parents began to be discipled and to serve, and, and, and they went from uh, you know, being baby immature Christians who had, had, had only milk for most of their life to now getting real food and growing. And, and so I didn't see my parents as perfect. I saw them as growing through my middle school and high school years. And, and it had a profound impact on me, not because they always were exactly right, but because they were striving to be and because they were growing, and because they were seeking the Lord and His Word personally and corporately, and they were applying it in our home as they learned more. So don't think you got to be perfect or you can't instruct your kids, but do think you have to be humble before the Word that you are trying to teach your children so that you are growing in response as well. So generally, our example will either affirm and strengthen the biblical truth about the Lord in our response to Him, or it will undermine them. You know, but I want us to think about a few specific ways the Scripture highlight that our example influences our, our children. One of those is that your worship is contagious to your children. We've been thinking a lot about contagious things over the last year or two. What you worship is contagious. Turn to Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments give instruction to Israel, to us, about the priority of worshiping God and worshiping Him alone. And there's a fascinating addendum to a commandment about idolatry where God says this in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol or an, of 
any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What is he saying here? He's saying that one of the reasons why you should be careful who you worship and how is because of the impact that has on your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. Now, you can be tempted to read this and think, well, does that mean if I don't worship the way I should, that God's going to punish my great-grandkids? That's not what he's saying. If you look elsewhere in Scripture, Ezekiel and other places make it clear that, that each individual is responsible before the Lord. He doesn't punish others for the sin that they have not committed. There are sometimes consequences of that, but that's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that if your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren worship in the same way that you did, idolatrous, he will continue to um, punish them. He will continue to hold them accountable and responsible for what they, what they have learned from you. One commentator puts it this way, this oft-repeated theme speaks of God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from their parents. In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they're doing. After all, they merely learned it from their parents. Saying just because you were an idolater and your kids learned how to be an idolater from you doesn't mean that God's going to say, well, it's no big deal that they're an idolater. No, he's going to continue to visit the iniquity on them. Verse 6 says, but he shows loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. What's the principle here? Well, the principle is it matters who and how you worship because who and how you worship has an impact on who and how your kids worship. What you worship is contagious. Your kids learn that from you. Again, not perfectly. You can look at examples in the Old Testament of generational shift from worshiping the true God to not, and vice versa. Every generation is responsible, but there's a reason that those who worship false gods, the next generation continues to do that. You can see that if you look globally at the false religions, they are passed down generation to generation. In the same way, what you worship will likely be passed down to your children. Now, I doubt that any of you have an idol in your living room that you are bowing down to and teaching your kids to. But I do think all of us have things that we worship and treasure, things that we love and we live for. Those might be things like our job or possessions, financial security, wealth. It might be things like success, that we want to be recognized as, as, doing the, uh, as being the best at something. It might be respect. It might be living for our family or our kids. Your kids are going to learn what you love and what you treasure by how you live. And my guess is, while they may say, as we've all said, you know, ah, I don't want to be like my parents in that way, we all end up like them. You know, you've seen the the commercials, you know, it's hard to keep somebody from becoming their parents, right? Even when you don't want to be. Uh, you know, the things that one, one 
Uh, you know, a, a dad who lives for his job is likely to have kids who, who think that's what's normal and who that's how we should live and so on. So what we worship, who we worship, is contagious for our kids, not in a determinative way, but in a reality that we need to recognize this example matters. How you worship is, is contagious. Look at Psalm 145, verse 4. You know, there's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about the responsibility to instruct the next generation, and, and this psalm is about God's goodness and God's greatness and and how we should pass that along to the coming generation. And, and the psalmist writes this. He says in verse 1, I will extol you, my God, O King, and every day I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. And then he says, One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. That's what we're talking about instructing the next generation. But notice he doesn't just say one generation shall tell of your works. That's true, and there's other places. But one generation shall praise your works to another. You see, kids are impacted not only by the content of what we communicate, but by how we model worship. Deuteronomy 31, verse 11 gave some instructions for when all Israel would gather together. And it says, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, the place which He will choose, you shall read the law in front of all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, the men, the women, and the children, and the alien who is in your town so that they may hear and learn and fear the Lord your God and be careful to observe all the words of the law. He says, we're going to all get together and I want you to bring your kids because we're going to read the law. This is, this is something that you're probably like, that's not necessarily like kid-friendly, right? <laughs> you know, th- this sounds like something, you know, I'm not sure my little child is going to make it through there. But what did he say? He said they need to do this so that they may hear and learn, and what? And fear the Lord your God. You see, a parent could have communicated the law to their kids on their own, but this was a unique opportunity, and they didn't all have a copy of the law, but also this was a chance to say, this really matters. When we all get together, it's like, whoa, this is important. You know, this, this matters in a way that, that is significant, and we get to pass that along to our children. So you can say and even believe in your heart that God is worthy of worship, and you want to live for Him, but your kids are learning from you not only who to worship, but how, what that looks like, and the magnitude and weight of that. That's one reason why, as a church, we, we encourage parents to, uh, to involve their children in corporate worship with them. That's why we don't want our youth group to be a, a kids worship or youth worship service, and the kids are never in big church until they're in college or beyond. It's why we encourage parents of, of elementary kids, as, as whatever point, you know, your kids, older preschool or elementary, can be a part of the service, we are thrilled for that. We want them there. Why? One, so they can learn and benefit themselves, but two, so that they are seeing this is how we worship. This matters. This is important. God is worthy of this. John and Noel Piper wrote this in the little book, The Family Together in God's Presence, 
on, uh, available on their website. I think we have copies of it in the Children's Building at the Welcome Center also. It says, parents have the responsibility to teach their children by their own example the meaning and value of worship. Therefore, parents should want their children with them in worship so the children can catch the spirit and form of their parents' worship. They should see how mom and dad sing praise to God with joy in their faces and how they listen hungrily to his word. They should catch the spirit of their parents meeting the living God. Something seems wrong when parents want to take their children in the formative years and put them with other children and other adults to form their attitude and behavior in worship. Parents should be jealous to model for their children the tremendous value they put on reverence in the presence of Almighty God. Again, parents have the, the freedom to choose at what point is that helpful for us and for our children, but you should be eager to have your children learning how to worship from you. Again, we could go back to that quote that says, you know, sometimes we, uh, we need to say less about it and, and do more about it. So it's not helpful if you bring your kids to worship and they see somebody who's disinterested and it's time to sing and you're just kind of like, oh, how much longer do we have? And it's time to study the Bible and, and you're kind of like, you know, not paying attention. But it, if they see somebody who's engaged, whatever that looks like for you, and they see someone who's focused on, on and eager to learn and grow and eager to talk about things afterwards, they are learning this matters. This is important. Your life speaks volumes to your children. Generally, your worship, who and what you worship and how you worship is contagious to your children. And, and also, a third reality, your marriage preaches the gospel to your children. What your kids see of your marriage is of vital importance Turn to Malachi chapter 2. Not a book we go to often. If you get to uh, Matthew, flip back a few pages. Malachi chapter 2, God is reminding the people of Israel of the priority of marriage. And He is expressing His heart and desire for them to be faithful in their marriages. In verse 14, of Malachi 2, he says, Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has a witness between you and the wife of our youth. Why is it that God is, is confronting us and, uh, for the sin in our, um, in our nation? And why is it that He is calling us to repent? He says, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife, by covenant. We see in verse 16, he says, I hate divorce. So they were, they were taking marriage lightly. In verse 15, it says, but not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what, what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. He's connecting marriage and the value of marriage and faithfulness in marriage with God's discipline and with the impact that has as he says in verse 15 on a godly offspring why does God care so much about marriage there's a lot of reasons there's a lot of reasons God values marriage and there's a lot of reasons why it's important in impacting the next generation but we see that in Ephesians chapter 5 that one of those reasons in verse 22 and following is because marriage is a picture of something greater it's a picture of the reality of the gospel. Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 33, we won't take the time to read all of it, but it, it fleshes out the fact that, that wives have the joy of picturing the church 
in responding to Christ in the way that they respond to their husbands. Husbands have the joy and responsibility of picturing Christ's love for the church, for his bride, and how they sacrifice themselves for the sake of their wife. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. And it wasn't that God just said, you know, one day he was looking at marriage and he thought, you know what, that reminds me of something. That reminds me of the gospel. No, it was that God intentionally designed marriage in order to picture this primary reality of the gospel. He designed marriage to be a great illustration of the gospel. And so it is precious to him, and it should be to us, that wives are modeling the response to Christ, and husbands are modeling the sacrificial love of Christ. This is a powerful powerful picture and you have the opportunity and I have the opportunity in our marriages to preach the gospel to our children by how we live there's a long quote there that I put that's I think is is worth reading from the book gospel powered parenting it it says this follow along as I read the gospel is the good news that the groom loves his bride He loved her so much that he humbled himself, descended an infinite distance, became man, and suffered poverty and abuse for 33 years. Then in the greatest display of love in history, he allowed himself to be tortured to death on a cross in his bride's place. The Son of God did all this to serve his bride, to make peace where enmity reigned. What motivated him? Love that surpasses knowledge. He longed to unite himself in irrevocable love to an unworthy bride. But the gospel is not just about the groom's love. It also provokes provokes a response from his bride. When understood from the heart, it motivates her to humble herself, love the groom with all her heart, respect him and serve him with joyful abandon. The gospel summons Christ's bride to yield to the servant authority of her crucified king. And here's Paul's point. Christian marriage preaches this union. It makes it either attractive or ugly. When a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church, washing her with the word, forgiving her, serving her, tenderly leading her, his marriage says Christ loves the church. You can trust the groom. He's infinitely loving. Serve him. You won't be disappointed. But when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, verbally belittles her, loves his children more than her, takes her for granted, his marriage says Christ's love is not that great. He loves us only when we perform. You can't trust the Savior. You can't meet His expectations. He doesn't keep His promises. Why serve a fickle despot? Wives also preach when mom joyfully submits to her husband as to the Lord, recognizing that He is her head as Christ is the head of the church and that she is His body and as the church is the body of Christ, it makes an attractive statement. When she does this for an unworthy husband, not because she trusts Him, but because she trusts Christ to care for her, it points her children to Christ. Her behavior says Christ is trustworthy. The Son of God is infinitely good. You can trust Him. But when a wife tells her children to obey Christ, yet does not trust Him enough to take care of her relationship with an imperfect husband, but seeks to control Him, resist His authority, refuses to respect Him, declines to serve Him, her actions speak loudly. They say the Son of Man, God cannot be trusted. He promises to exalt the humble, but I don't believe he will exalt me. He says he will take care of those who submit to lawful authority, but I don't really believe that. If I don't take care of myself, who will? In most cases, her children will internalize what she does, not what she says. Yes, we have a powerful opportunity in our homes, through our marriages, to instruct our children to model for them the realities of the gospel and to reinforce that truth 
through our example in the home. We have to recognize that our example is instructing our children. Our life generally, our worship, our marriage speak volumes to them. But instruction is not simply our example. It's not enough to just say, well, we're living it out for our kids. They're going to pick it up. We need to be intentionally communicating the truth to our children. Look back at 2 Timothy 3. In your Bibles, or at the top of your handout there, Paul says, not only continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, the importance of their example and character, but, verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. What's that? It's the Scriptures. We need to, fourthly, prioritize Scripture in instructing your children. It says, Timothy, continue in what you've learned, knowing from whom you've learned them, and don't forget that from the time you were a child, a young child is the word that's used there. Uh, some translations say even from infancy, you have known the sacred writings. You grew up with the Scriptures all around you, saturating your life and your thinking. We need to prioritize Scripture in instructing your children. One reason for that is because Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. Look how he continues. Verse 15, he says, From childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Where do we find the Gospel? Where do we find the wisdom that leads us to salvation through faith in Christ, it is in the Scriptures. If you want your children to understand salvation, to respond in faith, you should saturate your instruction with the Scriptures. The Scripture gives wisdom for salvation. Psalm 19.7 puts it this way, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The, 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 the Scripture is what God uses to restore our soul to right relationship with Him. Romans 10 speaks about how faith comes by hearing. Hearing the Word of Christ. We need to hear the truth of God's Word. The Gospel. The Scripture gives that wisdom for salvation. Not just in in random verses, but in the entire biblical narrative. It's not you know, like a magic formula. If you just use a couple verses, bam, they'll have the wisdom for salvation. No, it's understanding the truth of Scripture. The, the biblical worldview of God as Creator and sin and, and God's plan of redemption in Christ. So we prioritize Scripture because it gives wisdom for salvation and because it is profitable it's beneficial he goes on and says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that's parenting think of it this way the scriptures are profitable they have all that we need in order to teach that's like if if you think of of telling somebody okay here's the path you should live Here's how you should think about everything. Here's how you should live. This is the path you want to walk on. That's what you're instructing your children in. Proverbs and Psalms make it clear there's really only two paths. God's path and 
uh, and the, the path of folly, of rebellion against God. You want your kids to walk on this path. It gives you the wisdom and the ability to teach them. It gives reproof. What's that? Well, that's you're off the path, and it says, hey, you're off the path. It's reproof. It's, it's rebuke. You're not thinking. You're not responding and loving and living the way that you should. That's reproof. What's correction? Well, that's helping you get back to the path. Here's what you need to think and how you should live and why you're struggling in this way. It helps us to be back on the path, and then it trains us in righteousness. What's that? Well, that's how to, how to stay on the path, how to keep walking and growing in maturity. What is profitable for all that? Your own wisdom? Your own experience? No, the Scriptures are what is profitable for those things. And so we must teach our children the Scriptures from the time they are young. Therefore, Scripture must be the primary content of our instruction. Not just talking to your kids about good things, but utilizing the Scriptures to instruct. This means the very text of Scripture, using actual verses, reading the Bible with your kids, posting verses around your house that help you to know how you should think using Scripture. It also means that we are, are bringing to bear the, the overarching story of Scripture on our kids. Helping them to think about God as Creator and we live in His world and yet we are rebellious against Him and there's hope in Christ and ultimately God is working to bring about a new creation. The, the theology of Scripture, how does God want us to think about specific issues in life? like himself, like authority, like sin and, and other people and Christ. Helping our kids to, to apply Scripture and, and how we think and live. As your kids can understand more than you think. Your kids are able to, to begin processing the Scripture much earlier than, than you probably give them credit for. It doesn't mean they can fully understand everything, but Jesus commends childlike faith that believes and trusts God. And, and uh, often the things we struggle to believe because we don't understand them, our kids will readily embrace because they do trust or they do have a, more of a childlike faith in some of those ways. So we can use the Scripture to instruct our children from the time they are very young. Again, the goal is not just Bible knowledge. It's life transformation that the Scriptures shape their thinking. And next time we'll talk more about some ways to be intentional in this because I didn't want to rush through it this week and, and talk about some resources that can be helpful and, and some of the practical ways this looks. But it starts with the reality that if this is our goal, we must have Scripture filling our minds and hearts as parents. You can buy all the right books from the bookstore and they will help you in this. But if you are not committed, and I'm not committed as a parent, to dwelling on God's Word myself, then I'm not going to teach it to my kids the way I should. That's why Deuteronomy 6.6 6 says, These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart, and then you shall teach them diligently to your sons. What does that mean for us as parents? Well, it means we need to be spending time reading Scripture. 
I know at various seasons and stages of life, that can be more difficult, young moms especially. It may be that you have less opportunity than you wish you had or than you had before you had kids, but this needs to be a priority. And dads, you get to help sometimes to say, okay, I will keep the kids alive for for 15, 20 minutes. You go, have some private time to spend with the Lord. Like you, You've got to work together to that end may mean that you listen to Scripture more at that season than, than you do at other seasons, in part because you can do that while holding a, a child or doing other things. But we need to be intaking Scripture. We need to be studying Scripture so that we can explain it and understand it. This may be personal study where we're digging in ourselves. Again, that's a vital aspect of our own understanding and growth. It may be study corporately, things like coming to a parenting class and listening to lessons on specific things that help shape your mind. It's, it's corporately listening well to the sermon and going back and listening to other sermons on themes that maybe you need to dig in more at, at that particular point of life. It involves memorizing Scripture so that we have it with us all the time, but not just memorizing it so that we have it memorized but meditating on it, chewing on it, thinking about it over and over and over so that it shapes our thinking. Guys, if you want to instruct your children in the Scriptures, this is where it starts. It starts with your mind and heart being saturated with Scripture yourself. Some of that is just generally, as you become more saturated with Scripture, you will have more to overflow to your children in the form of instruction. Some of it may mean you've got to be intentional to learn the Scripture about things you need to know right now to be able to instruct your kids well. There may be specific questions your kids have for you. Hey, tell me about, what about this? And you, your right answer at that point is, you know what, that's a great question, I don't know. Um, and it doesn't need to be, why don't you go ask your Sunday school teacher? Youth, I mean, that can be a helpful thing, but it can be, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig in and, and we'll find out together. We'll study it together. That can drive you to study. It may be the issues that are a struggle in your own heart or with your kids, that that fuels the study of Scripture for your own growth and for the growth with your kids. We must prioritize Scripture in instructing our children. Again, next time we'll talk through some practical ways to do that and some specific scenarios to try to help us think more intentionally about that. But we have to have that commitment. A final reality today for us to think about is we need to emphasize the gospel in instructing your children. Again, we saw this in 2 Timothy 3 when he said these scriptures are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see, a priority emphasis of scripture is the gospel. There's a reason the scripture give wisdom. It's because the scriptures contain the truth of the gospel. Seed form back in Genesis 3 all the way toward full bloom in the, in the coming of Christ. We must emphasize the Gospel in instructing our children. It's very easy in talking to children to emphasize behavior and how we should live. 
partially because that's one of the things we hope for our kids is they'll act different and partly because it's really nice for us when they act different. And so we can just focus on change your behavior, 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 and, and not focus on God and the gospel as what we need. So we need to emphasize the truth of the gospel with, with kids. There's a, actually an evangelism class coming up late February. You could, you could transition from this class to the evangelism class. If you feel a little inadequate in sharing the gospel uh, with your children, that would be a wonderful opportunity to grow in your understanding of that, not just for the sake of your kids, but others. But the gospel, you know, at its, at its basic base form, it's the truth as Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 15 about Christ. But that truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, has a context that is necessary to understand biblically. And that's the truth about God as the creator, as the holy one. And man, as the sinful rebel who deserves God's judgment, it's against that backdrop that we understand Christ's coming and His perfect life and His substitutionary death and how we are called to respond in repentance and faith. You should be talking and I should be talking with my kids all the time about God and about man and about Christ and about our response of repentance and faith to Him. Again, we'll talk more next time. Sometimes we don't get to present all of that at once in a real clear way. Sometimes we're talking about sin because their sister hit them. And that's sin. And it's a chance to talk about sin in that context and maybe connect a little bit to the gospel. Sometimes we're enjoying creation. And what a great opportunity to talk about God as creator. And we may not get all the way through the whole gospel, but we get to talk about that aspect and element of it. So the gospel is about Christ, but there's that biblical and theological context that we want to help our kids understand. You know, and, and we can also think of the gospel as, as that whole narrative story of God as creator and fall and, and the redemption that God is bringing about through Christ leading to the new creation. Again, we need to emphasize the individual response in that and, and what that looks like, but that's another way we are helping our kids to understand the truth of the gospel We don't only need to focus on the truth of the gospel. We need to help our kids understand the need for the gospel. Think about it. If you tell your kids the most important thing for you to know and understand is the truth of the gospel. There's nothing more important than that. And your kids never know of another person that you've ever bothered to tell that gospel what are they going to think? I think, well, maybe it's not as important as you act like it is, right? So, so it's not just the need for the gospel for our kids. It's the need for the gospel generally for us and all people everywhere that we are helping our kids, should be helping our kids to see. They need the gospel. We need the gospel our neighbors need the gospel. Our extended family needs the gospel. Our, our friends at school and co-workers need the gospel. The nations need the gospel. And we should be eager to help our kids understand that as they are understanding their need for the gospel. So focus with your kids on the truth of the gospel, but also the, 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 the vital need that they have and all people everywhere have for the gospel. 
This may come from praying for others that you're seeking to share the gospel with. It may come from working together as a family to lead to gospel opportunities with neighbors. Maybe your kids are helping you to bake cookies so that you can take them to a neighbor at Christmas time with something that has the gospel, attracts, that you're trying to build that relationship and you're helping your kids to think about those things because you want them to understand this is vital and because you love your neighbor and you want to share the gospel. May mean praying for missionaries together, talking about the work of God in the world and the need for that with your children. Again, because you care and because you want to be intentional to help your kids understand that. Sometimes we think things as parents and we assume them and we never pass them along to our children because we aren't intentional to communicate those. So the truth of the gospel, the need for the gospel, and, and thirdly, the response to the gospel We need to help our kids understand how we are called to respond to the gospel. It's not do better. It's not you you need to work harder. The gospel is about a gift that we receive by faith. We are called to repent and believe the gospel. To turn from our sin, to hate sin because it's, it's that Uh, reality of our rebellion against God and to in faith come humbly crying out for mercy as we see in the the parable God be merciful to me the sinner calling on the name of the Lord to be saved we want to urge our children to not only understand that response but to respond to the gospel now when we're doing this with children it's a it's a delicate thing to urge our kids to respond to the gospel in a way that is faithful, in a way that prioritizes their salvation in the gospel, but also recognizing the dangers and pitfalls that come with evangelizing children. Let me encourage you, there's a a document um, that our elders have put together called Evangelizing Children. Uh, Again, I think there's copies at the Children's Building Welcome Center that flesh this out more, uh, but we want to be careful in how we call children to respond. Let me give you two ways to be careful. One of those is to be careful not to coerce a response to the gospel. You see, the scriptures help us understand the nature of kids. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says, when I was a child, I used to think like a child. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, don't be children in your thinking. Ephesians 4, 14, no longer children tossed here and there. What, what is he saying? Is he making fun of kids? No, he's just acknowledging the reality that children are easily swayed. They can be tossed to and fro here and there. I mean, you think of a, of a child, some are, some are stubborn and not as much that way, but um, you know, a child whose favorite color is blue one day and then they have a friend whose favorite color is green and so they say, you know what, my favorite color is actually green um, and then they get another friend whose favorite color is red and now my favorite color is red and it's like, well, at some point you get to decide your favorite color, not based on others' input. You know, it's possible and likely that you can get most children to profess faith in Christ if you work hard enough at it and are skilled enough at it, right? If I, if I talk to kids about hell long enough and what heaven's like and, and I explain the options and I say, okay, who wants to go to hell? Nobody. All right. That's good. Who wants to go to heaven? All right, you guys all want to go to heaven. Well, all you have to do to go to heaven is to repent and believe. And so who wants to do that this morning? Yes, I want to go to heaven. Um, 
So we can, we can lead children towards a response that may not be reflective of what is going on in their heart, and we have to be careful with that. can't tell you how many testimonies you'll hear at baptism services where it's like, you know, I thought I was saved when I was very young because I, uh, you know, I, I prayed a prayer somewhere, I walked an aisle, I did something, and I thought I was a Christian, but I didn't live for Jesus or didn't even understand the gospel until I was 24. And that that person thought they were a Christian because of some profession of faith when they were young, and they realized that wasn't true. It doesn't mean we don't call children to respond. It doesn't mean kids can't respond. It just means be careful not to coerce your children, not to uh, put pressure on them to respond in a way that is, is more to please you, to please others, rather than uh, genuinely the reality of their heart. So be careful in that. At the same time, preach the gospel to your kids. Don't think, oh, we can't do that, and we shouldn't do that, and we shouldn't urge them to respond in faith. So a second pitfall to be careful of related to this is to be careful not to improperly assure the child of their salvation. Here's what I mean by this, and we can, we can talk more if you have questions. You know, it's easy for a child to profess faith and for their parent to get super excited about that, which is right, because we want our kids to be saved. And so say your young child professes faith, and your response is, is to say, yay, now you're a Christian, and we go and, and, and make a big deal out of that, and every year we take you out for a steak dinner on that day, and, and we you know, get you a new Bible, and we, we put that date in it real big, and, and now what are they going to use as their assurance of salvation for the rest of their life? That's going to be based on, my mom or dad said I was a Christian, and so I'm a Christian. Well, what do you want their assurance to be based on? Well, you want it to be biblical assurance of salvation, which is not the testimony of parents. It's rather the reality of, of their confidence in the gospel and the fruit that that produces. So Colossians 1, the verse we read earlier, says you're a Christian if what? You continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. So that's a great verse to assure your kids. <laughs> To say, yeah, here's what the Bible says. If, you're, if you have repented and believed, it says if you continue in the gospel, firmly established and steadfast, you can, can have continued assurance of that salvation. You're training your kid that if three years from now, 30 years from now, you have moved past the hope of the gospel, you ought not feel that assurance. No matter how many steak dinners we had on April 14th or whatever it was. You, you, you should not feel that assurance. It's biblical assurance, not parental assurance. Or you might take them to verses, places like 1 John and, and a great uh, equipping that we're getting uh, that this is what is characteristic of one who, who loves Christ, who believes the gospel. We should see a, a growing love for, for God's people and a commitment to obey. And you're, you're helping them to see those things, to be able to recognize those things in their own life and heart, not you as a parent giving them the official stamp of approval because you simply don't know. One author, Jim Eliff, in his book, Your Child's Profession of Faith, put it this way. He says, if I were to give you a seed to plant in the ground and told you it was a certain type of flower, you would not know for sure it was so, even if it began to sprout. You would know more when it put out leaves, and you would be even more sure when the bud appears, but you would know for certain when it blooms. You see, the reality with our kids, sometimes we just don't know yet what is true in their heart. And that doesn't mean we can't be encouraged. It doesn't mean we can't encourage them. It just means... 
Time will ultimately demonstrate the reality of their profession. So encourage your kids. Preach the gospel to your kids. Call them to respond to the gospel, but be careful not to coerce that response or to improperly assure them because you are excited for the confidence that they're a Christian. Direct them to the Scriptures in those ways. Two practical things related to that. That's one reason why, as a church, we encourage kids to wait until at least around the age of 12 for baptism. It's not that younger kids can't be saved. It's that we want a little time for for them to demonstrate an understanding of that and the fruit of that. They're not in disobedience in that time because we're asking them to wait. We just want them to be um, careful. We want parents to have the opportunity to observe more of their life and and to see that be a a decision that they make uh, out of their own heart. Some will ask, what about the Lord's table with kids? Again, I'll share a couple resources next week that are related to this, but I, I, I think it's, it can be a great opportunity when your kids start asking about the Lord's table to talk about the gospel, to talk about their understanding of the gospel. You know, most of your kids, if they're like mine, they get pretty excited about juice and crackers in church, and so their initial reaction is not based on love for Christ. It's, hey, can I get some snacks? Like, I'm used to that in Sunday school. Where's mine? Um, And so don't think just because they're asking, that means they get it and they love Christ, but use that as an opportunity to talk to them. You know, don't push them in that way. There's a a helpful resource called uh, uh, The Lord's Supper, Let's Get Ready. That's a a study you can do with kids who are more elementary age or others. Again, I'll, I'll have that for you next week that can give you a chance just to interact with them, to see what they are what they're are thinking and understanding and why they want to do that before you, you um, maybe allow or, or encourage that. You know, Lord's table is a little different than baptism. Baptism is a one-time event. The Lord's table is a recurring opportunity to evaluate our own heart before the Lord. You know, you don't get a you get to take the Lord's table card, you know, and now it's like, yay, for the rest of my life, I get to take the Lord's Supper. No, it's a recurring thing for all of us. You know, that's why you hear Tom say, hey, if you're, if you're trusting the gospel and not holding on to sin, this is for you. If your answer is ever no, I'm not trusting the gospel or I am holding on to sin, then don't take it. And so it is with your kids. So I think you can handle that a little differently, potentially than baptism, but those are things to, uh, to wrestle through. So we want to emphasize the gospel in instructing our children. We want to emphasize the truth, the facts of the gospel, the, the need for the gospel and the response for the gospel in a way that is, is faithful to zealously proclaim it while being careful, recognizing the, the pitfalls of doing that with children. So let's pray. Next week we'll, um, we will talk about being intentional in these things formally and informally. And so we'll talk about what the Scripture has to say about that as it equips us, and we'll talk about a whole lot of different resources and ways to do this. Uh, So I hope this week you've got the big picture and principles. You can start applying this, and, and yet then next week we'll really try to flesh out how do we do this well as parents. So let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. Thank you that it does give us the wisdom that leads to salvation. And Lord, for all of us in this room who who are in Christ, we just glory in that reality that you have used your word and your spirit to draw us to yourself. And we pray that for our kids. Lord, we know we can't do that work. We cannot change their heart. But we want to be faithful to teach them the scriptures, to proclaim to them the gospel, and to to do so in a way that 
that is magnified and amplified by the way that we live. Lord, help us to do that faithfully so that our kids will continue in what they have learned and become convinced of. That they will stand firm, loving Christ, regardless of what the future brings in their life. Lord, that's our heart and our hope and our prayer for them. And we want to be faithful to that end. In Christ's name, amen.